On April 13, 2011, the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences held a gallery opening at Lafferty Hall, displaying photographs, notes, and a video presentation about Mr. Ahmed Kathrada. He spent more than 20 years in prison for opposing apartheid in South Africa. His visit to UK served many purposes, to celebrate the debut of the exhibit, to receive an honorary degree from the university, and to attend a book signing and release of his memoirs entitled No Bread for Mandela, published by the University Press of Kentucky. The following recording is from the gallery opening. He talks about food, forgiveness, and what South Africa needs to succeed in the future, and how students can get involved. Well, thank you, folks. Uh, I don't want to repeat all the things that have already been mentioned by Kurt and Shan and others. Just uh, as we came here this morning, uh, we were greeted by the professor of anthropology. And I was wondering whether he's going to display us as fossils. <laughs> but uh, obviously, thank God it wasn't that. As for the, I have often said that uh, the in prison, the technological revolution had passed us by. So when there was talk of having this exhibition in America, my thought was, well, how are we going to pack that thing together? And uh, Curtin said, no, no, you don't have to worry about that. Because we came from a time when there were no computers. Uh, the night before we were released, uh, we were told that uh, the prison authorities had received a fax from prison headquarters to say that we were going to be released tomorrow. And our first question was, what is a fax? <laughs> uh, so it was quite amazing that they did not have to cut the whole exhibition. And I'm told that this was done by computer. Now, we've never ever seen computers in our lives until uh, after we came out of prison. So thanks to technology, but most importantly, thanks to Kurt and Marsha, Mark and Sean and everybody that uh, made this uh, exhibition possible. Uh, Barbara here is hiding <laughs> because uh, she can't hide because her photograph is there. <laughs> uh, so thanks Barbara also for, for whatever assistance she gave, much as she tried to hide away. I, with your permission, would, can answer any questions that uh, maybe... What is the first thing you remember eating when you got out of prison? You see, uh, the staple diet was porridge, porridge, porridge. And uh, I may just add a bit of politics. Under apartheid, there was differences for all population groups. Different laws applied to different population groups. So in prison, and when you see my book, the American edition, the title is No Bread for Mandela. And, and people may wonder why 
those who haven't read the book. Because black prisoners, like Mr. Mandela, was not allowed bread. For a whole decade, we were given bread. So that's how apartheid uh, applied. Now, so our diet was more or less standard because after some years, they equalized the diet. But one, we, one thing we missed most uh, is photographs. Now, where's Bob Wesson? Bob, Bob show yourself. Don't hide. <laughs> because I want him to feel what a prisoner feels like. <laughs> now, I think Bob did not know that the standard fare on Robben Island for years and years and years was porridge and piece of bread. Well, Indians got bread. Black prisoners did not get bread. So that was the standard fare. But we loved photographs and we wanted to see people, friends and so forth. So we received the photograph from our friends in London, Bob Wesson and others. And what was in that photograph? A big photograph with a Sunday lunch. <laughs> so, <laughs> we, we spent a lot of time identifying. What is this? <laughs> what is this? But as we identified each dish, our anger grew. <laughs> anyway, I think, uh, you know, one of the deprivations, some deprivations in prison, the, the worst deprivation was the absence of children. Children under 16 were not allowed. Uh, and I saw a child, saw a child physically after 20 years. But the other deprivation being political prisoners was deprivation of freedom of speech. Uh, politicians, as you know, like to talk. So what I'm saying now that if you listen so attentively, I may try to make up for 26 years of deprivation of speech. <laughs> and I don't want to do that. So don't want to punish you. Unless there's questions, uh, we can answer that. What can University of Kentucky students do to help Africa? And I'm leaving that intentionally what? very broad. Well, you know, we are just 16 years old as a non-racial democracy. We need skills in every sphere. We need skills. Under some of the laws, apartheid laws, the the majority population under certain law were not taught mathematics or science because they were supposed to be laborers and our oppressors thought science and mathematics not necessary for laborers with the result that we have a tremendous shortage of teachers in, in the sciences of course now there's mathematics and science and everything else and luckily, uh, um, quite a few of our people studied abroad and uh, locally too now in South Africa, uh, our universities and colleges are giving sciences and mathematics. But in 16 years, 
It's, it's too little to make up. So we need skills. And of course we need investment, but this is the wrong audience to talk about investment. <laughs> but skills are safe. And what we do find uh, every now and then, to our surprise, is the number of American universities. We just come across by accident. They, they are active in various fields in South Africa. Uh, but there is no coordinated uh, document that shows that so many universities from America are doing this, that, and the other. So that's another thing that we can learn uh, from the universities, what they are doing. We know Sharon here, Sharon Gelman. They run an organization called Artists for a New South Africa. And they do a lot of work among AIDS orphans in South Africa. Artists for a New South Africa have got all your favorite Hollywood stars and so forth and Sharon is the chief of, of that organization. But what I was saying is, uh, is they do that work, and then there's another organization called South Africa Partners that also does a tremendous amount of work in the field of AIDS. So there are these organizations that do work, and I unfortunately can't go into details because I don't know enough, but I'm sure Mark in due course will be able to supply more information Last night I was sitting at a table with uh, a gentleman, I don't see him here, who uh, specializes in training people in entrepreneurship. Well, that's the type of thing we also need. Okay. But as I say, I myself am not uh, very conversant with, with those type of things, and we hope that through Mark's help and the help of others, we'll reach that gentleman as well. Do you think you'll ever be able to forgive your captors? Can you forgive the people who put you in prison? Oh, I see. That's a very important question. You know, our policy that brought us into the, the government, the, the democratic government, our policy was to strive for a non-racial, non-sexist, democratic South Africa. Unlike other colonial countries, the oppressors were not a handful. In South Africa, our compatriots who are white were not just a few thousand. They were a few million. They were South Africans, born in South Africa with no other country. Not to forgive them meant perpetuating hatred, revenge, bitterness. These are all negative emotions. We knew that when the dust of struggle is settled, we are still going to live with them. We cannot perpetuate the years and years of fighting uh, against the oppressors, who were white, of course, but must also remember not only whites, but there were collaborators among the oppressed as well who made the party successful. So, briefly, we had to work with, with people. We had no expertise. We couldn't run a town council. We had no expertise 
in, in many skills. We needed the expertise of people who had that. And because of our policy of forgiveness and reconciliation, fortunately, large numbers of people with expertise remained in South Africa. Otherwise, our country would have collapsed. And with the help of those experts, we managed to get our people trained, not sufficiently, of course, but they did get some training in the years that have gone by. But as I can only repeat, we need more and more skills. We just can't make up our, in 16 years what we need. So we need those skills. Forgiveness and reconciliation are absolutely paramount. Hatred, revenge, bitterness are negative emotions. The ones who harbor those emotions suffer more than the ones towards whom these emotions are directed. So there was no other way out. To build a new South Africa, one nation, under one flag, we had to forgive and concentrate on reconciliation. That's a wonderful final question, because the, the exhibit here is about both Mr. Kathrata's life and the larger vision that he has. And the question, I think, also reflects that as well. So when you go through, you not only see the person, but you see a person who, when I first met him, he had come been in jail for 26 years. He was concerned about the fate of his former jailers, because they were disadvantaged in the new South Africa. So he takes forgiveness and reconciliation on a personal basis. And then I'd urge you in going through the exhibit and looking at the video as well to think about the meaning of non-racialism because that's not a term we use much in the United States, but it's really about a world where people are treated as people regardless of everything else. And that's the vision um, that the Kathrata Foundation really puts forward and that this exhibit's about. Um, so please join us at 2 o'clock and thank you for uh, speaking with us. And thank you. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the College of Arts and Sciences for making this podcast possible. For more information about the South Africa and Kentucky Initiative, please visit southafrica.as.uky.edu.